0: I remember being a young kid, sitting in the crowd at a dead show and looking around and going, holy shit, everyone here is tripping balls. Is anybody here sober? I felt like the vibe, the code, like the checklist was like, you got to do some sort of hallucinogen or at least suck down a few nitrous balloons, you know? It just felt like some mandatory memo that we got. You know, like, can you still enjoy the live experience when you're sober? And when I was young, my answer certainly would have been, like, no fucking way. For better or worse, I think drugs were a huge part of the experience and the culture. I think that when I found
1: myself at Grateful Dead shows and I was all alone, it did kind of feel like behind enemy lines.
0: This is Don Bryant, better known as Grateful Don. He's the co-founder of The Warfrats, the group of concertgoers who have chosen to live drug and alcohol free.
1: There was a lot of drug use there. I was sober, you know. I, I mean, I'm sure there were other sober people there, clean people there, but nobody knew where they were. You know, when I say the war at saved lives, uh, those aren't empty words, and they're not meant to be dramatic. It's just true.
0: From Sonos, this is America's Dead. I'm Emmett Malloy, and I've been a fan of the Dead's music for decades. I'm also an artist, a filmmaker, a father, and a cultural observer. And recently, I've become a bit obsessed with understanding why the dead mean so much to so many different people, even today. I mean, the dead have been performing since literally before I was born. And it seems like, strangely, they're more alive now than ever. Through 10 episodes of the show, I've been on a journey, I guess, to understand what the dead can tell us about us. Making America's Dead has taught us so many things. And a really profound one for me is that no one sees the dead as just a band. It's a movement. It's a rite of passage. It's a community. A community loving the music, going to shows. These are ways that people across the country and really all around the world find one another, find their people, create a sense of belonging. And Don, he's really lived these values. So we want to devote this episode, our last episode, to his story. Here, in his own words, is Grateful Don.
1: You know, to be quite honest, growing up in Lynn, Massachusetts in the 70s was no picnic. I mean, it was kind of a working class town. And in my neighborhood, there was a lot of... uh, heroin. You go to the playgrounds, six o'clock, all the junkies would score. They'd be sitting on the wall, shooting up. The police would come. They'd let the dogs go. The dogs would start biting the kids. You know, it was crazy. A lot of people died and a lot of people suffered. It was not pretty. You know, I was a product of my experience And, you know, there were seven children in the family, an alcoholic father, abusive father, a mother who, you know, had seven children in nine years. So, you know, she was strapped financially, economically. I looked at my dad, you know, he would drink every day, come home, he'd pass out on the couch, he'd roll over, fall on the floor, wake up angry and then want to get dinner. You know, this is this is what I thought was normal. You know, this was what I grew up experiencing. When I look at why people are addicts, there's some deficits in their human experience that we try to fill through chemicals. You know, we're looking for pleasure. We're looking for love. We're looking for these things that, you know, somehow we don't really have. Uh, That's what I think. And so I think kids they do, what they've seen their their families do. And I sort of fell into that. I think I started smoking pot when I was about 14. And there was a short time where I was doing LSD and just kind of taking drugs. People call it recreationally. I don't think for me it was ever recreationally. It was morally always about trying to escape. And then I progressed rapidly into shooting drugs heroin, barbiturate. Basically, at one point, I became, I guess we used to call them a needle freak, where I would use all the drugs I could find through uh, intravenous needle. There was like this smorgasbord of things to use, and I just would take anything i get my hands on. And it stayed like that for uh, several years. I had several jobs, but it was always functional jobs around my ability to use drugs and alcohol picking blueberries, apples. I worked on dairy farms. I worked at a carnival. You know, I was one of those guys that would run the merry-go-round for your little children. I would have a six-pack of beer early in the morning. I'd be drinking all day, and then at night I would get loaded. I had a lot of self-hate. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. I didn't have a lot of real reason to feel good and and I think that was a, a big part of my wanting to blot out my consciousness. My first Grateful Dead show was in 1973. Watkins Glen was really my first big festival. I didn't know what a hippie was. You know, at the time, I thought that people just got high at these things. I remember seeing a line of people. And I walked up to the line And I mean, there was 15 people in this line and there was a pickup truck and at the front of the line, somebody was using a needle and everybody in that line was waiting to use that needle to inject some drugs. I just remember getting high, pretty much solid straight through from probably Thursday morning when I woke up, you know, all day Thursday, all night Thursday night. But the best part of that weekend was the Grateful Dead's Sound check. I was already so wasted that I could not physically get up off the ground I was sort of conscious because I was under the influence of say some stimulants, some psychedelics I was physically so loaded that I could not physically push myself off the ground and I heard the Grateful Dead soundcheck as if it were through a transistor radio with the sound turned way down low. And that was my first Dead show. It wasn't pretty, but I was there and that was my first experience with the Grateful Dead. I got arrested in 1973 for methamphetamine and hypodermic needle syringe and some pot and I uh, went into treatment. And uh, at that time, I did, in fact, stop using intravenous drugs, just drink and smoke pot and occasionally take other recreational drugs. I was still addicted, especially to alcohol. I was on the road for a while kind of living hand-to-mouth as a alcoholic. And uh, at one point, I was living in Boston. Uh, my friends, you know, would do the same thing every day. Don't ask me where we got money, because I really don't remember. But But for some reason, we always had money for a nickel bag and a six-pack of beer. And we would go to the beach almost every day. One day they came a little early, and I remember I, you know, I, still had, I was still hungover, and I, I grabbed a towel, and suddenly I learned that they weren't going to the beach. They were going to a military recruiter. I took the test because there was basically nothing else to do, and before I knew it, I was in the Army. I joined the military in 1975. I went to Korea. In those days in Korea, mostly everybody had either a drinking problem or a drug problem, so I fit in very, very well. You know, it was a full-on party over there. I blacked out every night. I would end up in the emergency room and the hospitals and would end up in jail. I took it to the extreme. I was a dope fiend, a dyed-in-the-wool dope fiend, a garbage head. I would eat anything and take anything, and in today's world, I'm sure I'd be dead. I ended up getting in enough trouble that they decided to put me in treatment. I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I quit drinking in Korea in the spring of 1977. But um, there was a few times that I smoked pot afterwards. I was on leave, and I came back to Boston, and one of my good friends said, hey, you want to go see the Grateful Dead in Boston Garden, May 7th, 1977? It was the night before Cornell. I mean, a lot of people hold that up as being some great event, and it was, but I would go so far as to say that that the night before in Boston was just as good, maybe better. I remember we were way up in the nosebleeds. I didn't want to get high. I intended not to. But all night long, these joints kept going back and forth, and I would just pass them. And then about halfway through the second half of the second set a joint came by and i just took it and smoked it all down (laughs) i got really blissfully high that was my last experience um using drugs may 7th 1977 that's what i take my my date of sobriety from My next experience with The Grateful Dead wasn't until 1982. I was stationed in Colorado Springs with my girlfriend. She wanted to go see a Dead show. We drove up to Red Rocks and scored a couple of tickets. I sort of muscled my way down into the third row and I was just holding on to her and that's where it happened to me. I remember feeling a strong sensation, totally clean and sober, as if somebody had just fired an arrow into my head. I remember thinking strongly to myself that when Jerry Garcia is up there on that stage, that there was literally nobody in the world I would rather see. That's where it began for me. Soon thereafter, I was going to every show I could find. I went to a show in 1984. I drove from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I had been sober at that point, I guess, around seven years. But um, I had said, you know, if I ever get high again, I want to eat some shrooms at a dead show. You know, that was kind of a secret thought that I, I would have. So I got there just before the show started and I I ground scored a quarter ounce of mushrooms. And when I got back to the hotel room, I looked at this bag and I was like, whoa. I was alone, I was at a show I had a bag of mushrooms was this my higher power saying go ahead, have one on me and so I gave it a great deal of thought and what I got down to was that I knew if I ate those shrooms that I would want to smoke some pot and then that I'd want to drink some wine and I'd be off and running again and so I got rid of them it was an important moment for me you know, I'd done the steps, I'd done service work, I'd been involved in recovery, and I came within an iota of, you know, thinking it was okay for me to, to go ahead and eat those shrimps. I'd love to be able to eat some psychedelics and go to a show, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's something everybody loves to do, right? <laughs> I mean, but I just know that for me, I can't do it. So I went to an AA meeting, Back in those days, people were not allowed to go to Grateful Dead shows and, and, and talk about it at, at meetings. You know, it was, it was automatically kind of day class A. You weren't really sober if you went to Grateful Dead shows. At, the, at a minimum, you were getting a contact high. There's a lot of people who can't reconcile being a deadhead with being in recovery. And they usually just want to go to a show. And some of them have a great deal of uh, fear. They're afraid that they're going to be around it. And so nobody did talk about it. And I met a man there, Tony. And this guy came up to me after the meeting. And he whispered in my ear, he said, I'm here for the Grateful Dead shows too. It was at that point we started making a list of names of people that we... Knew were clean and sober, deadheads that are in recovery. And so there was a group of us. My West, and I love my we were confronted with the proposition wife. of naming the group. And Tony said to me, What about Warfrat? In the lyrics in the song, there is a, a man who's a, obviously an alcoholic. The, some of the lyrics are, but I'll get back on my feet again someday. The good Lord willing. I knew that anybody who was a deadhead would understand why we named it Wolfrat, If he say, I may. I know the life I'm livings No good. I guess I'll get back and live the life that I should. Deadheads, they all know. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I looked at him and said, that's it. You know, we have to call it that. So that's where we got the name. His wife, Kristen, we all consider ourselves to be co-founders. She was kind of egging us on like, you know, you need, to, you need to really develop this. And she put an advertisement in Relics Magazine. And I put it in the Golden Road that said, come celebrate sobriety take your 12-step group on tour. First, it was a trickle, three, four letters a day. And then it was 10 to 15. And before we know it, we had hundreds of people on our list. And that's how the Wharf Rats kind of really took off. The Wharf Rats first went on tour in the summer of 86. We gathered some other Wharf Rats and and we kind of all went into the show together And we didn't know what to do. We were doing all sorts of silly stuff. You know, we were doing this thing called the roll where we just kind of got into a big cuddle puddle and we were rolling all over each other, you know, hippie stuff in the military. We have these things called link-up points. You know, if all hell breaks loose and you don't know what to do, everybody runs to a place where it's pre-designated. And so we designated the spot behind the drums during the intermission as our link-up point in the show. So, you know, when the set break came, we all would meet behind the drums, and it was just sort of a gathering... We ended up in this great big circle and looking at each other in the eyes, and we're singing all the songs. And it became apparent that in recovery, all of these songs had a double entendre that meant even more to us sober and clean. Like, I need a miracle every day. You know, we would sing that, look at each other, and we'd get all ecstatic because, wow, we do need a miracle every day, you know. And Black Peter... We got to the verse in Black Peter, where it says, see here how everything leads up to this day. Fuck, I was crying when I think about it, you know? Sun going up, sun going down, shine through my window, and my friends, they come around. Everything seemed to make super sense all of a sudden. and the circle, we all felt like that was the birthplace. That was the birth moment of the Wolf Rats. That's where we really came into existence, right there. You know, we knew we had something very special and it just grew from there. Almost overnight, from 86 to 87, it spread. I mean, the milieu of wharf rats and recovery just kind of went nationwide. The Grateful Dead found out about us. They gave us a table. They gave us entry for two people to come in and set up uh, a safe place for wharf rats to connect with each other. And other people come because they are at the end of their rope. They don't know any place else to go. And the Wharf Rats offer them a kind of a doorway to be able to be themselves, be in recovery, and still be sober, clean, recovered. They get their life back together. I've had a good life. I've been clean and sober for 44 years. I've had an unbelievable life. And I got a couple of kids. I've lived a life a lot of people could only dream of. I'm grateful for all of that. I'm grateful for my recovery. I'm grateful for all the people who did service work in the War fronts. You know, it takes somebody special to go sit in a hallway while Jerry Garcia is up on stage and playing the best music that you might exist in your entire life. Um... <clears throat> and do so because they want to be there to help other people. And that's what I think uh, I want to say.
0: I just want to thank my man Don Bryant. I appreciate you, man. The Warfrats are still going strong today. They do weekly Zooms and in-person meetings. For more information, you can go to warfrat.info or join the Warfrats official Facebook page. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, there's a 24-hour, 100% confidential hotline. And you can call it at 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. All right. Wow. This is our last episode of America's Dead. And I just want to thank you all for going on kind of a bit of a journey with me. I hope you enjoyed one or all of these and um, basically making this show. It it kind of shined a lot of light on a band that I thought I knew a lot about, you know, and I did, but... I certainly had a lot more to learn. And that's what I really loved about this project was that I got to see so many different perspectives and so many different ways that the dead have affected people. It's incredible. And I think the spirit of the dead, it belongs to all of us in a different way. So I'm signing off now. I want to thank you all for going on the journey with me. Okay. Thanks for listening to America's Dead from Sonos. If you haven't yet, this is your moment. Share this show with a buddy. Text your favorite episode to a friend. Tell them why you're digging the show and let us know what you think. We're on Instagram at Sonos Radio. You can subscribe and get all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. America's Dead is produced by Work by Work. Scott Newman, Gemma Brown, Kathleen Ottinger, Alex Kapelman, and Ben Montoya. Additional production from my old friend Josh Agajanian. The show is mixed by Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Our theme music is by Jake Longstreth, John Nixon, Aaron Olson, and Ryan Adloff of Mountain Brews and Richard Pictures. And a special thanks to Joe Dawson at Sonos. I'm Emmett Malloy. Catch you next time.